Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 through 25. Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him. And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Samuel called on the Lord and on that day, the Lord sent thunder and rain. As a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. They pleaded with Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king to ourselves. Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, one day Jesus uh, was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and a man named John saw him, and he pointed in his direction, and he says, this is the Lamb of God. And a couple of that man's disciples looked over in Jesus' direction and decided to walk after him along the road. And when Jesus noticed that there were a couple of guys following him along the way, he turned and asked the question, what are you looking for? It was such a simple yet incredibly significant question. A Christian philosopher by the name of James K.A. Smith says it is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. It's a heart-probing question. What are you looking for? It's heart-probing because ultimately we move towards and we look for that which we, which we want. Or to put it another way, human beings are driven by what they desire. And these two disciples wanted to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so they went after Jesus. They walked towards him. They moved in Jesus' direction. And as you and I move through life in this world, we are constantly moving to that which we want. We are driven by what we desire. So asking and attempting to answer the question, what are you looking for, helps us discover what might be ruling or governing our hearts in a given moment or even over the course of a lifetime? And so the question we ask ourselves today, what are we looking for? It is a big question. It's akin to the tip of an iceberg. At first glance, it seems simple. At first glance, it seems manageable. 
But when we peek beneath the surface of that question, we find a labyrinth of competing, conflicting, and even contradicting desires within us. We find that what we want isn't so simple. It's why our sense of self so often as we journey through the world that is, we we feel schizophrenic. We want different things at different times for different reasons. Our wants and our desires as human beings tend to be incoherent. They tend to be elusive. Now, psychologists have picked up on this. They recognize that our brains tend to mispredict what we think will make us happy. We say things like, well, I will be happy if I get accepted to the right school. Or I'll be happy if I find the right partner. I'll be happy if I make a vice president. I'll be happy if I can get my dream home. And there's a Harvard psychologist by the name of Sean Acor who argues that this if-then perspective, it can't be supported by science. And the reason for that is that each time the brain experiences something like a success or a happiness, the goalpost of what success or happiness looks like, it moves. Our wants change. So if you get good grades, you then have to get better grades in order to be happy. If you have a good job, then you must get a better job to be happy. If you hit your sales target, then you must raise the sales target and hit that if you are going to find some semblance of contentment, happiness, satisfaction with the life that you are living. And so on and so forth, the story goes, what we want in order to be happy changes so frequently. Now, these incoherent and elusive wants, they are illustrated well in the experience of ancient Israel. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those out and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you're new to the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. At the beginning of the Bible, you can find uh, help to navigate to 1 Samuel chapter 12 and just meet me there because our church has been in the middle of a series titled, When Mess Meets Mercy. The Gospel of 1 Samuel. And my goal today is to hopefully uh, drive your desires towards the resurrection of King Jesus. And I hope to do so from this passage. Now, I will admit that this is not a traditional Easter text. But since all the Bible is about Jesus, every passage can get us to him, this one included. And so we want to consider this passage and how it points our desires and our wants in Jesus' direction. And so as you open up to 1 Samuel chapter 12, at this point of history, just to give you a little background, the, the people of Israel, they are a young nation comprised of about 12 tribes. And each one of these tribes represent descendants from a man named Jacob, one of his 12 Sons. Jacob is also known as Israel in the Bible. He is the namesake for the nation. Now, it's been about 400 or 500 years since this people were rescued and redeemed out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. And so they are, yet they are still trying to figure out what it looks like for them to be under God's rule as a newly formed people in the world. 
And so they're trying to figure out how can we live in harmony under the rule of God and how can we live in holiness before the surrounding nations. They are aware at this point in time that God redeemed them, called them, rescued them out of Egypt so that they might be a light to the surrounding nations, that God intended for this young nation to be a light that showed the world what life looks like when God is king. But what we find in in the tragic story of the people of Israel is that their wants tend to change. And at this point in time, we are stepping into a moment where Israel is wanting something different. They've taken a moment to survey the surrounding nations surround them, and they like what they saw in others, and they decide they want to be like them. Now, years ago, there was a cereal called Shreddies, and sales for this cereal were great. Kraft Kraft Foods uh, sold this cereal for a number of years, and And sales for the company was wonderful. But then the executives at Kraft Foods decided they wanted to boost the sales. So they hire a marketing firm to help them figure out how to kind of put some new juice in their Shreddies cereal. And so the firm stepped into this conversation and began to consult uh, Kraft Foods. And what they decided to do, they said, all we have to do, if we want to boost sales, we just need to take that square-shaped cereal and turn it 45 degrees in the images that are plastered all over boxes and other marketing mediums. And so that's what they did. They just simply shifted the square so that it, 45 degrees, so that it looked a little bit like a diamond, and they renamed the cereal Diamond Shreddies. They didn't change anything about the recipe. They didn't change anything. They just simply adjusted the visual. And the campaign was massively successful massively successful. There was one analyst who described it this way. He said, this shows that by simply changing one visual element of your product to look more like a triangle than a square, even an age-old established brand like Post's Shreddy's Cereal can see immediate and sustainable growth of 18% in just one month. By more closely matching their target market's visual desires... Kraft Foods received an immediate boost. Now, what was going on in that experience is that marketers, they tapped into an instinct for visual desires that have been within the human state since the very beginning. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and find this dynamic at work. You have a moment where the serpent slithered up to Eve and he drew her attention to the tree of the knowledge of good and and evil. And this is what we read. We're told the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, we are driven by our desires And our desires and our wants are often shaped by what we see. We journey through this life and images of the good life are constantly impressing themselves upon us, shaping what we want in an effort to answer the question, what are you looking for? 
We scroll through Instagram looking at all these small slices of joy and tranquility and assume at first glance that everyone else must be getting life right. And then we measure our moments up with those still photos and we draw a terrible conclusion that suggests we must be getting life wrong. And so we begin to want what what they've got. We begin to want what we see being displayed. But understand that social media represents just a tip of an iceberg. And if we take a deeper look, we will find that what we see isn't an accurate depiction of reality. What we will see then is that our visual desires can be misleading. Now the people of Israel are going to learn this lesson the hard way. They look at the surrounding nations and they decide they want what they've got, but then they learn that what they wanted wasn't very good for them. They looked at the surrounding nations and saw that each of them had an earthly king specifically. They saw a group of people known as the Ammonites who were ruled by a guy named Nahash. And they said, we too want a king like him. And this was a, a bizarre desire. This, wasn't, this was a surprising want by the people of Israel because Nahash wasn't a good king. Nahash was an oppressive ruler. As Pastor Mark pointed out last week, when Nahash would take over a foreign city or he would seek to take over a foreign people, he didn't just seek to subjugate those he conquered. He would seek to humiliate them. And so Pastor Mark pointed out last week that he would enter a city and then he would gouge out the right eye of all its inhabitants. This terrible act of humiliating those that have been conquered. And yet this is the king that Israel is attracted to. This is the people that Israel wanted to be like. Perhaps they saw in that a sense of superiority over others that they themselves desired. After all, if their enemies are humiliated, then they will be elevated on the world's stage. And so they wanted a king who might employ very similar tactics and very similar strategies as every other ruler. Often you and I desire what might cause us to rise in the world's eyes, and we desire those things even if it comes at the expense and exploitation of others. I remember in the seventh grade, I wanted to fit in with the football team and members of that team, but to do that, you couldn't be seen as the weakest link. And there was another kid on the team who kind of fit that bill, and one day at practice, we were matched up in a, in a tackling competition. And I didn't just want to win that competition. To my seventh grade shame, I wanted to humiliate my opponent. And so when we locked up in that moment, members of the team started cheering me on and my chest started to puff out a little bit and I kept knocking this kid down until a fight broke out that he lost. The desire to be popular ruled my heart in that moment and I served I served it to the humiliation of a fellow of a fellow image bearer. Well, the people of Israel wanted a king like everyone else had. They insisted on having one like Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And then you have this odd moment in the story where the Lord says, okay, if that's what you want, you got it. And the Lord gives Israel a king like that. He says, if you, if you want one, you can have it. And in a wise display of judgment and mercy, the Lord gave Israel exactly what they wanted. 
You know, judgment and mercy tend to be mixed and mingled together in God's activities. And one of the ordinary ways in which judgment shows up in our lives is when the Lord does just that, when he gives us what we want and he hands us over to that which we desire. But in that act of judgment, there is mercy because what happens in those moments is that our wants often are often found wanting. We get what we want and realize we don't want it. That it's not what it's all cracked up to be. We're we're dissatisfied with what the Lord has handed handed us over to. It's not enough for us. The goalpost moves, and in that there is mercy if we look carefully enough. We start looking for something else because what we got what we wanted and it wasn't enough. In that comes the realization of the heart's deepest desire. This is what a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis was getting after when he said, if I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is what St. Augustine was getting after when he said, we were created by God and for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. This is what Cheryl Crow is getting after when she says, if it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? This is what Tom Brady picked up on after winning his third Super Bowl. He said, my God, this, this can't be. This, this can't be what, all, what life is supposed to be about. He says, There's got to be more than this. Well, the people of Israel are learning this lesson. They're learning it the hard way. They're soon discovering that wanting a king like everyone else was a mistake, that they really didn't want what they thought they wanted. But by then, the Lord had already given them Saul, and now Israel has to recalibrate. And as a people, they have to realign themselves under the rule of God in light of what the Lord has provided them. And so what that means for the people of Israel in this moment is that both the king and the people must resubmit to God's rule. And in that sense, Israel's king, if they do that, if Saul and the people, they recalibrate, they come under God's rule, they repent, and they start honoring the Lord as God once again, if that happens, then their king will never be like the king of the surrounding nations. Israel's kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and all the rest that will pop up throughout the rest of Israel's history, they they are expected to lead the people of Israel not to oppress and humiliate other people groups. They were expected to lead them in service to the Lord, being his light to the nations. They were to be a people that showed the world what life looks like when God is king. And so what you have in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is this moment where the people of Israel are gathered and the prophet Samuel is presiding over a formal ceremony where the people of Israel are doing just that. They are recommitting themselves to the Lord and to the Lord's king. But the king himself has to resubmit him, his life to the Lord as well. And so the chapter begins with Samuel making it very clear to the people, look, your biggest problem right now isn't with God. Your biggest problem right now isn't with what God has told you. Your biggest problem is yourself. Your biggest problem as a people is your wayward desire. It's you being shaped and driven by what you see taking place in other nations 
experience. And so Samuel reminds the people of Israel, after kind of laying out what their biggest problem is, he then recounts ways in which God has been good to them. He recounts ways in which God has shown his greatness to the people of Israel. He reminded them, look, your ancestors, man, they made a mess of things a lot. And every time they made a mess of their lives and they looked up and started crying out to the Lord for help, what happened? Well, the Lord helped. The Lord delivered. The Lord rescued. And yet you still have the audacity to want another king other than the Lord? Samuel's just kind of tracing that history to say this is your biggest problem. And the solution moving forward is for everyone, King Saul included, to resubmit themselves to the rule of God. And he gives them a warning. He says, if you don't, then the Lord's hand is going to be against you. And to make sure they get the point, the Lord hurled a thunderstorm in that moment. And the people of Israel found themselves in the middle of a storm that caught everybody off guard because we are told that this moment took place in the middle of the wheat harvest. Now that's significant because that's the peak of the dry season. You didn't see storms like this in that moment. You certainly didn't expect them. This would be very similar to a blizzard rolling through Seattle in the middle of July. It would be that unexpected, that surprising. The Lord hurls this thunderstorm to make sure the people of Israel are getting the message. And according to verse 19, they do. So you look at verse 19 in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We read that they pleaded with Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for ourselves. They're getting the message. But what I love about this story is how the prophet Samuel responds to that. They are confessing. They are repenting. They are returning to the Lord. And what are they met with? They are met with grace. They are met when the prophet responds, don't be afraid. Don't you love that? Don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Do you hear grace in that moment? Do you hear how committed the Lord is to his people? If you hear how committed the Lord it was to them, then you should hear how committed the Lord is to you right now. Because like Israel, even though we have rejected the Lord in a myriad of ways, and we have sought to replace him with all kinds of alternative kings, the Lord refuses to give up on us. The Lord is determined to make you and I his own people. You know, one of the deepest wants of the human heart is to be wanted. It's one of the deepest desires in our souls is we just want to be wanted. That's why we do so many things in an effort to be noticed by so many people. It's why we do so many things in order to be praised by others. We want to be wanted and our insecurities, quite frankly are the result of feeling unwanted. You know, that's why I treated that kid so poorly in the seventh grade. That's why some of you don't share your thoughts and feelings with anyone because you are afraid of being rejected. You want to be wanted. 
It's why we replace God as king so often with what we see governing and ruling everyone else's lives. We see their money, we see their clothing, we see their ambition, we see their talents, we see their influence. All of which seem to account for why others are wanted in the world. And all of a sudden, we want that too. Because what they have is what we envision to be the good life. And our visual desires are shaping how we answer the question, what are you looking for? And so we move from one situation to the next, just begging and pleading, do you want me now? Do you want me now? Do you want me now? What do I have to do in order for you to want me? What do I have to do in order for you to accept me? What do I have to do in order for you to love me? All the while we are running ourselves ragged in that rat race of approval and attention. All the while the Lord is saying to you, I want you. You don't have to be wanted by everyone else. The Lord wants you. This is his message to the people of Israel. That the Lord is determined to make you and I his own. He does not want to see you or I waste our lives running after worthless things. Things that cannot profit us. Things that cannot rescue us. Things that cannot redeem us. Therefore, he's determined to make us his own. And in the process of making us his own, he is determined to expose the inadequacy of alternative kings. Judgment and mercy, the Lord giving us what we want so that our wants may be found wanting. The Lord in that moment is exposing the inadequacy of alternative kings so that we might come to the true king, so that we might return to the one we were made for. Well, the prophet Samuel reflects the Lord's resolve in verse 23. He says, as for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Now, Samuel has recalled many great things that the Lord has done for his people. The people of Israel had a whole history of evidence to bank their hope on, to give them a sense of security, to assure them that when they return to the Lord, the Lord will receive them with open arms. And if Israel had a history to draw from, how much more do you and I? I mean, we are gathered today on Easter Sunday. We are here to commemorate and celebrate the greatest thing God has ever done, which was resurrect the Savior, Jesus, from the dead. So we are here, kind of on the back end of Holy Week, of Passion Week, a week that started with Jesus. Entering Jerusalem, riding on the back of a colt, and as he entered the city, he heard the masses crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is in the highest heaven. And Jesus rolled that colt into the city, knowing that within a few short days, those praises would turn to curses. That those who held him in one moment would condemn him in the next. Crucify, crucify him. In one moment, everyone wanted Jesus. In the next, nobody wanted Jesus. The wants of sinners and sufferers like us are so fickle. They are elusive 
and incoherent. Yet Jesus knew that in order to reach and redeem the deepest, redeem the deepest desires of the human heart, he must go to the cross. And so he kept rolling into the city all the way to the cross, and he allowed the hands that he created to abuse him, to afflict him, and to ultimately crucify him. Yet from the cross, Jesus would remind us of the Lord's resolve to make us his own people, and he would holler out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Translation, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they want. Have mercy upon this people. Forgive them. And as he's saying these words and he's experiencing those final moments of his life in this world, we, we are told that the same Lord who hurled a storm in 1 Samuel 12, he hurled clouds into the sky to cover up the sun so that everything went dark. And although it was high noon, no one could see a thing. And in that moment, one of the Roman soldiers realized that what the masses wanted was a mistake. And he cries out from the cross, surely this man was the son of God. And Jesus died. And we're told soon after that, a couple of wealthy men came. They were looking for the kingdom of God. So they asked for the crucified corpse of Jesus. And, and, they, were, and they received the crucified corpse of Jesus. And they took his body and they placed him in a tomb after giving him a burial fit for, fit for a king. I want you to think for a moment the final words Samuel shared with Israel back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. The final words he said to the people, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. He's tying the fate of the people with the fate of the king. We are driven by what we desire. And where we end up is determined by what we're looking for. There's a reason why when the stock market crashed in 1929, workers at Wall Street hurled themselves off of high-rises, plummeting to their death. There's a reason why that happened. Their king had been swept away. Later in the seventh grade football season, I dropped a touchdown pass that would have won our team a very important game. And the popularity I felt I literally fought for. That popularity just abandoned me. My king was swept away in an instant. I felt humiliated. I was no longer wanted. But the human heart is not made to be autonomous. The human heart is not made to be autonomous. There is a throne room in the heart of every human being, and there is always someone or something occupying it. The human heart needs and desires to be ruled. The question is, will our hearts be ruled by a king that can be swept away? When the tomb was sealed, it seemed to everyone who was present that King Jesus had been swept away. That he was just another king like everyone else and his kingdom would crumble just like every other kingdom had crumbled up to that point and just like every other kingdom will crumble in the future. It seemed as though our king had been swept away the moment that tomb was sealed. But then there came that moment. 
There came that moment when the stone was rolled away and King Jesus burst forth from the grave and all who would see him, all who would fix the eyes of their faith upon him, they would come to be able to answer the question and find the true deepest answer to the question, what are they looking for? They would now find it in the resurrection of King Jesus. So we think this morning that whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever it is that you desire, you can find it by putting your faith in Jesus, submitting yourself to his rule. And when you do, understand that you are, you are then being ruled by a king who will never exploit you, a king who will never humiliate you. A king who will never abandon you. You will find the one king that death itself cannot sweep away. And so what we're doing today as, as followers of Jesus, as we're recalibrating our faith and our commitment to King Jesus, we are recognizing that he is the one reliable ruler in all of the universe. And so we come back to him. We renew our commitment to him in light of his unwavering commitment to you, and his unwavering commitment to me. Jesus is the king that not even death itself can sweep away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider the resurrection of King Jesus today? And, and I pray that as we ask and attempt to answer the question, what are we looking for? I pray that you would expose the inadequacy of alternative kings and that you would bring us back under the rule of the resurrected King Jesus. We believe, Jesus, that you are better for us than any other person, any other place, any other thing. We are saying today, Lord, that you have declared that you actually want us that you love us, that you desire sinners and sufferers like us. And so we come to you in repentance. We come to you in faith. And we find ourselves wanted. We find ourselves loved. And we thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. And we declare all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.